Right, well, go for your Bibles and find Ezekiel. Ezekiel chapter 47. We don't normally start with a reading and then have the teaching, but in fact that's what we're going to do tonight. In fact, we've, we've got two readings. But Ezekiel chapter 47, and I'm going to read from verse 1. And in actual fact, what we're reading is a, a vision that Ezekiel has of the temple in Jerusalem during the thousand-year reign of Jesus. So, in effect, what's happening here, Ezekiel, in a vision, is being transported forward in time to the temple in Jerusalem during the thousand-year reign of Christ. All right. Ezekiel 47 and verse 1. Then he brought me back to the door of the temple, and behold, water was issuing from below the threshold of the temple toward the east for the temple faced east. And the water was flowing down from below the south end of the threshold of the temple, south of the altar. Then he brought me out by way of the north gate, and led me round on the outside to the outer gate that faces toward the east, and the water was coming out on the south side. Going on eastward with a line in his hand, the man measured a thousand cubits, and led me through the water, and it was ankle deep. Again he measured a thousand, and led me through the water, and it was knee-deep. Again he measured a thousand, and led me through the water, and it was up to the loins. Again a thousand, and it was a river that I could not pass through. For the water had risen, it was deep enough to swim in, a river that could not be passed through. And he said to me, Son of man, have you seen this? Then he led me back along the bank of the river. And as I went back, I saw upon the bank of the river very many trees on the one side and on the other. <clears throat> and he said to me, This water flows towards the eastern region and goes down into the Arabah. And when it enters the stagnant waters of the sea, the water will become fresh. And wherever the river goes, every living creature which swarms will live, and there will be very many fish. For this water goes there, that the waters of the sea may become fresh. So everything will live where the river goes. In actual fact, what's happening here is that this, this stream issuing from the temple, in fact, is flowing into the Dead Sea. And as it hits the Dead Sea, all manner of life and fish are brought into the sea. Fishermen will stand beside the sea from Engedi to Eneglam, and it will be a place for the spreading of nets. Its fish will be of very many kinds, like the fish of the Great Sea. But its swamps and marshes will not become fresh, they are to be left for salt. And on the banks on both sides of the river there will grow all kinds of trees for food. Their leaves will not wither nor their fruit fail, but they will bear fresh fruit every month, because the water for them flows from the sanctuary. Their fruit will be for food, and their leaves for healing. And we'll be back to that because we want the symbolism. But now go to Matthew's Gospel. The Gospel of Matthew... <clears throat> and in fact we're going to read the last bit of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount and this is the real, the real business like that we want tonight Matthew 7 and starting verse 24 <clears throat> and this is Jesus ending the Sermon on the Mount he says everyone then <clears throat> who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who builds his house upon the rock and the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat upon that house but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock and everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house upon the sand <clears throat> and the rain fell 
and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against that house and it fell and great was the fall of it. Father, we pray that as we turn now to, to your word, that your Holy Spirit will be our teacher. Oh, Father, we just pray that, that we'll learn, Lord, that we'll, we'll meet with Jesus in your word. Oh, Father, just, just make us excited, excited about the truth. And Lord, I pray as well that each person here tonight will just get that special little word that's just for them, that thing that you want to say to them that you don't want anyone else to know. Lord, I pray that they'll get that tonight and that everyone, all of us, will just be blessed and strengthened through your truth. Lord, we just ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. <clears throat> One of the great phenomena, or phenomenons, or whatever the plural of phenomenon or phenomena is of the 20th century, is do it yourself. Everywhere you turn, it's do it yourself. I mean, it's, re it's marking out the 20th century consumer society. Everyone's into do it yourself. I'm into do it yourself. Around the house, if Blinder asks me to do something, I say, do it yourself. No, but, but, but seriously, everyone, all right, today is, it's do it yourself, all right? All the adverts, pay less DIY on, on the telly, it's all the rage. But you see, what I want to draw your attention to tonight, and this is really what we're going to be looking at, is that um, now we have do-it-yourself Christianity. We know all about do-it-yourself decorating, we know all about do-it-yourself building an extension or do-it-yourself putting a greenhouse up. But sadly, one of the things we're up against today is do-it-yourself Christianity. And that what really I want to show you is that there are really two, two ways of living the Christian life. You can let the Lord do it, or you can do it yourself. Now, what I want to do is to identify some of the reasons why it is that we get so in bondage to DIY discipleship. <coughs> and that what I want to do is, is to show you that the reasons that we naturally end up doing it ourselves in serving the Lord, that the reasons we do that are exactly the same of the, as the reasons why people do do it yourself when they come to decorating or, or working around the house. And, and we'll find that the, re that, that the reasons coincide, you see. And there are three main things that I want to bring out, and, and, and the first one is this. The reason that people do it themselves, you know, say if they've got work to do on the house or something like that, the first reason is that if you do it yourself, it's cheaper. It's cheaper. Go to Luke 14, Luke chapter 14, and have a look at something that Jesus said here. Luke chapter 14 and verse 33. And listen to what Jesus said. <clears throat> he says, So therefore, whoever of you does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. So sounds a bit pricey to me, doesn't it, if you let the Lord do it. Whoever does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. And when Jesus said that, the, the, the parables that he tells immediately before that, talking about a guy who wants to build a tower. And Jesus said, but he's really sensible if he works out, if he can afford it. 
don't start it until you know you can finish it because it's going to cost you and, and, and this guy would look really crazy if he set out and started on something he couldn't finish and Jesus spoke about a king who went, you know, goes out to meet another invading army and Jesus said that king if he's wise first of all he'll take a good look at the situation he's in and he'll work out whether he can beat that other king whether he's got more men than him or whether it would be best to just surrender and, and bargain for terms for peace so what Jesus was saying is that don't, don't be too quick just, just sit down, just think about it so follow Jesus it can't be done cheaply Jesus said we must renounce all that we have and that Jesus was very, very clear in his preaching that he expected people to count the cost carefully and thoroughly before they became disciples. <clears throat> and when Jesus says here that you must renounce everything that you have, the Greek word is apotasso or apotasso. I reckon that's how the Australians would say apotasso. <laughs> and what it literally means is to arrange off of that's the literal meaning of the word but what it means is to separate or to set apart or in one place in some translations of the bible it's translated bid farewell and the sense of it is to bid farewell the point is that to follow jesus is to wave bye bye to your life as it has been up to now because the thing is that you don't know what the Lord has got in store for you from this moment onwards so the picture that we've got here is that when Jesus is speaking about look realize the cost of your discipleship is that if we are really to be disciples of Jesus then we have got to be willing to wave bye bye to life as it's been before now can you see what I mean? Because none of us finally know what the Lord may have in store for us at any particular time. Go to Acts 18. Acts chapter 18. <clears throat> and first of all, find verse 18. And look at this. This is, this is very interesting. <clears throat> it says, After this, Paul stayed many days longer and then took leave of the brethren and sailed for Cilia and with him Priscilla and Aquila alright so we've got the picture here Paul is waving bye bye to a particular church now go down into verse 21 <clears throat> he said on taking leave of them he said I will return to you if God wills and he set sail from Ephesus and when you get this word the phrase took leave and on taking leave of them that is apotasso and it is Paul waving bye bye to a group of people that is what the word means but look what he says I will return to you if God wills so can you see Paul is waving goodbye to a church of people and what he's saying is Tatar got no way of knowing whether I'm ever going to see you again I will if God says yes but if he says no I won't 
Now, can you get the picture of what the Bible means when it talks about renouncing everything? It means that we must be able to say goodbye to our lives, goodbye to everything about our own lives, knowing that it is purely up to Jesus what he retains and what he takes away. But as far as we're concerned, we say bye-bye to the whole lot because we don't know precisely what Jesus is going to do with us. Now, obviously, when it comes to kind of our lives, we make no no changes without clear guidance, obviously. The rule of the Bible is carry on exactly the way you are unless God clearly shows you a change that has got to be made. So don't make any changes without clear guidance. But the point is this, in any area of our life where we do not have clear guidance about what the future holds, because there are times when God gives us clear guidance about the future, that's no problem, but in any area area of our lives where we do not have clear guidance from the Lord, the biblical rule is this, assume absolutely nothing. Take nothing for granted. Jesus can do with us exactly what he wants. He can lead us exactly where he wants. Can you see why Jesus said you've got to renounce everything that you have? It doesn't mean that you're literally like, say, you've got a house. It doesn't mean that you've got to sell it and give the money away to the poor. But what it means is to renounce means that you've got to be willing to say bye-bye to your house. And when you've said bye-bye to it, as long as the Lord lets you live there, well, isn't that lovely? But everything has got to be surrendered to him in case he wants it. Can you see? I'm not saying Jesus will want it, but the point about renouncing everything is that we must hold everything very, very lightly. Whether it's things we own, whether it's our future plans, uh, whatever it is, every aspect of our lives, we must hold them lightly for the simple reason that we don't know what Jesus might want to change in us or about us, or change the way he's leading us at any time. Now let me say very, very quickly, to clear any confusion that might come up, there are some things that he will not change. Of course, he will not change your husband or wife. So, I mean, we're, we're not talking about that. I mean, I'm not saying... When I say everything is up for grabs, can you see the limitations that I'm putting on this? But can you see the picture when Jesus says to renounce everything we have, apotasso, that what he's saying is that you've got to wave goodbye to everything, potentially, because you do not know at any time what Jesus may require of us, what he may allow us to retain, or what he may actually require of us. You may be convinced that you're heading in a particular way in the future. You may feel that at work there's promotion in store. And yes, if you stay there and work hard and work well for Jesus, why not? And that would be right. But you never know, God might have something different for you next year. I'm not saying leave your jobs. I'm not saying that at all. But I'm saying that any change that Jesus reveals to us that he wants us to make, we must be willing to make that change, no matter how costly it is. 
You remember how Jesus, in the first few months of his ministry, wherever he went, he was healing the sick, he was casting out demons, he was preaching pretty incredible sermons, because the people said, wow, the authority, he's not like our teachers, he's got authority. And Jesus had the crowds following him, they flocked to him. And then one day, Jesus preached one sermon, to this crowd, hundreds and hundreds of people, and by the time he finished, there were only 12 people left following him, and they were the 12 that he'd started up with anyway. And the reason that they left him is that what Jesus was saying was starting to get a little bit too costly. They started to realize that being a disciple was going to be a little bit more expensive than they originally thought it was. And remember, <clears throat> why was it the crowd flocked round Jesus anyway? I'll tell you, he works miracles. It was supernatural. I'll tell you, the sinful nature loves the supernatural. Can't get enough of it. And you can see Christians today, I mean, they go from one meeting to the next. I mean, if there's a guy with a miracle ministry, well, I mean, I, I could draw up long lists of Christians who they will be there ogling years and years on the the round of signs and wonders and yet having known them for years I ask myself are they actually growing in the Lord and they're not I'm not saying there's anything wrong with signs and wonders we need them and Jesus has promised them but can you see how the crowd can ogle and Jesus fed them didn't he when they were hungry he worked a miracle with loaves and fishes that's why the crowd was following Jesus they were following him for what they could get out of him. Spectacle, material provision, you see. But then Jesus preached a sermon. He said, no, look, this is what discipleship is really about. And the whole lot left him except the twelve. Now, I'm terrifically glad that salvation is a free gift. If it wasn't, I wouldn't be saved, and neither would anyone else. So salvation is a free gift. It's by the grace of God. But discipleship will cost you everything. Absolutely everything. We can be just believers. We can be happy to be converts. We can be happy to be born again and paddle on the Christian scene. You know, sort of do our little bit, go to the right meetings. And we'll end up in heaven, no problem. If we've believed on Jesus and we're born again, we will end up in heaven. But Jesus wants more than converts. The Bible says, make disciples. Not converts, make disciples. And a disciple is someone who will do what his master tells him to do. So you see, the thing is that discipleship... And remember, we're going to be contrasting do-it-yourself Christianity with real Christianity. You can do it, or Jesus can do it. But if Jesus does it, believe me, it really is a lot more expensive. It is cheaper, certainly, if you do it yourself. You see, it's going to cost us everything, and we must be willing, as disciples of Jesus, to lose even our friends, to lose even our family, to lose even those possibly who we are in close fellowship with. But if we lose them as a result of being faithful to Jesus, then so what? 
But can you see, if in our hearts we are not willing to pay such a price, should it be needed of us, if we are not willing to pay that price, then Jesus is not going to be able to do the work in us that he wants to do. We must settle this, a willingness to lose everything, to lose all. If so be, that comes as a result of following Jesus faithfully. So that's the first reason why people are into do-it-yourself Christianity. It's cheaper. But there's a second reason why people are into do-it-yourself, and it's because it keeps you in complete control. You see, do-it-yourself means that you haven't got the bother of decorators coming in. You haven't got the bother of workmen traipsing around the house, mucking up your routine, or anything like that, you know. And if you do it yourself, what it means is that it gets done in your time, and it gets done in your way, with no one else interfering. In other words, it becomes exactly as you decide. Now that is another reason why Christians are into do-it-yourself Christianity. Because if you're into DIY Christianity, you haven't got the bother of Jesus mucking up your routine. You haven't got the bother of Jesus traipsing in and out parts of the house of your life that you don't want him in. Can you see what I'm saying? When Jesus prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane, he said to his Father, he said, Not my will, but your will be done. Now, if you were to look at the Christian scene today, you really have to, to, to sort of like uh, remind yourself that Jesus said that to his Father. He didn't say it to the church. Can you see what I'm saying? When Jesus said, not my will, but your will be done, he said that to the Father. We tend to live as if he said it to us. As if Jesus, the Lord of the universe, has a kind of an attitude towards us, saying, oh, well, I mean, not what I want, but what you want. Many, many Christians, it doesn't occur to them what Jesus wants. It doesn't occur to them. They've got a rough idea. This is why there's such a movement in, amongst Christians against the literal interpretation of the Bible today. They don't want God's will. They don't want the bother of all these commandments that get in the way. Can you see? But Jesus submitted himself to Father 100%. Go to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and verse 19. And, and listen, listen to what Paul says. Now this is true of you and I. 1 Corinthians 6 and verse 19. Paul says, Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, which you have from God? You are not your own. You were bought with a price. You are not your own. You are bought with a price. Let me tell you, you and I have no right whatsoever to decide what our Christian lives ought to be like. You and I have no right whatsoever to be in control of our lives. <coughs> there is only one person who has that right, and this is Jesus. And discipleship is Jesus bringing us more and more surrendering control of our own lives and submitting the control of our lives to him.
The picture that we saw in Ezekiel 47 was of this kind of this stream coming from the temple, flowing into the Dead Sea and bringing life. And of course it's a picture of the Holy Spirit, waters of life. And that what happens is that Ezekiel kind of gets in and it's up to his ankles. And he walks along a bit more and it's up to his knees. And he walks along a bit more and it's up to his waist. Now you've got to understand that when Ezekiel gets in that river, even when it's only up to his ankles, is, you know, he's in the spirit. And he's going the right way. He's following the Lord. He's following the Lord. He's in the spirit. And he's going in the same direction as the flow of the river. But you see, the problem is this. He is deciding his speed he is completely in control now as he grows in the Lord he gets further down the river the water comes up on him until it's right up. and suddenly he starts to notice that the main battle he's got is with the river itself because he's, he's in the river he's in the spirit he's going the same way as the river he's following the Lord but he notices that, that the main problem he's got is with the river itself his main fight is with God and the fight is this, that the river was pushing him so hard that he was having to fight to keep his feet on the ground, to stay in control. When, of course, eventually he got to the point where he got so deep into the river that suddenly his feet were knocked off the, off the bottom of the river and suddenly, rather than him deciding his pace, his direction, suddenly... Now the river is doing all the deciding for him because his feet have been knocked off the bottom. He's gone under. Now he's fully immersed in the river. The river is in control. Ezekiel isn't. Now what's the picture? He's immersed in the river. Well, what's the Greek for immerse? Bapto. What's another way to translate bapto? Baptize. It's a picture of what the baptism in the Holy Spirit really is. To be immersed in the power of the Holy Spirit so that control is taken from you and control goes over to the Lord. That he becomes, in literal truth, he becomes literally the Lord of your life. Not as a theory, not as a doctrine, but that now Jesus is in control and it's what he wants that matters. And of course, being filled constantly with the Holy Spirit is of course to be surrendering, relinquishing control of our lives more and more over to Jesus. Now this is one of the primary things that the Holy Spirit is working on amongst us, amongst God's people. He wants to change the mentality that we've been given and to give us the mentality that the Bible wants us to have. And a lot of the mentality of evangelical Christianity can be summed up in that hymn that you, you, you probably know. It. The, the first line of the hymn or chorus is God is here and that to bless us. Now, the point is that you say that God is here and that to bless us and you can sing that and think, oh, isn't that marvellous? God's here and that to bless us. But that is totally the wrong way around. God is not here for us. The mentality that the Bible wants us to have is that we are here for him. It's not that God is here for us. We are here for him. The Greek word for church, ecclesia, means a group of people who have been called out of the world to live in obedience to God's voice. And that what's happened today, through false teaching, through the charismatic movement, 
is that a mentality has been given to us almost as if God is there to do what we say. Almost as if God can be manipulated by our prayers. I'll give you another example. A lot of the faith teaching today goes a bit like this. You step out in faith, and if you step out in faith, then God will back you. God will back you. Now let me tell you, that is rubbish. That is absolute rubbish. And the reason that that is false is this. It's because it has a totally wrong idea of what faith is. I've known of Christians who've got it into their head, wouldn't it be good if God did this? Or what a wonderful demonstration of power that would be. So they step out in faith, assuming that God's going to back them because they stepped out in faith. Now the reason why that's wrong is because they took the initiative. We have no right to take the initiative with God. Stepping out in faith is when God shows you to do something. And you step out and do it, not because you think it's a good idea, or because you think it might be dramatic, but you've stepped out and done it because Jesus told you. Faith is obedience to the word of God. Faith is doing what Jesus tells us to do. Now, if you forget that kind of, you know, if you forget the difference between those two things, you end up with Christians, I mean, running around the whole time, putting God to the test, here, there and everywhere, when the Old Testament tells us quite clearly that you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And of course, the thing that these faith teachers have done, I mean, they, they keep going on, think positive, talk faith, decide what Jesus, decide what you want Jesus to do for you, and then claim it by faith. You see, what they've done is they, they've rather made God like a cigarette machine. You know the cigarette machines in the pubs and that? And that your, God is the cigarette machine. Your faith is the coin. You put the coin in, and then the cigarettes drop out at the bottom. You press the button, and the cigarettes automatically drop out at the bottom. And th this is the mentality that the charismatic movement is spawning in people. So as if God's just there to answer our prayers, God's just there to do nice things for us. Now, God does want to bless us with nice things. He does want to move for us. Of course he does. But the emphasis in the Bible is not on that God is here and that to bless us. The emphasis in the Bible is that we are here to live in obedience to what Jesus tells us to do. We are here to be obedient to what the Word of God says. And can you see that with all these changes of emphasis, again, what has it done? It shifted the emphasis away from the Lord onto us. It's what we do. Faith is no longer a matter of the Holy Spirit giving you faith to do something and Jesus leading you in a particular way and you stepping out in faith. Nowadays, we decide what we're going to have faith for. The initiative has been taken away from God, the emphasis has been taken away from God, and the emphasis is back firmly on us, what we do. Can you see what I mean? Can you see the way that so much of this faith teaching is simply getting you to do it? You decide. You have to keep faith. You have to step out. It's you, 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 you. And of course, God is there just waiting to back you when you've eventually done it. Now, can you see that's do-it-yourself Christianity? Because at all points, the emphasis in the Bible isn't on us at all. 
the emphasis in the Bible is always on Jesus himself. It's always on what he does and never so much in regards to what we do. Now can you see that we have got to come to this place where we really are in our hearts willing to relinquish control to Jesus. Now, not that I'm talking about being out of control in some weird way. I mean, we're not talking about that at all. But I'm talking about coming through to a real reality where our lives are really submitted to Jesus. Where we really are willing to change every plan we've made, if necessary, Corrie Ten Boom tells a lovely story, and it was um, when she used to plan her speaking itinerary. What she used to do is she used to plan it out, so she'd have a, you know, and she'd do it a year at a time. And so she'd have all these sheets of paper with her yearly itinerary. And then what she'd do, as it were, she'd ask the Lord to sign it. She'd say, Lord, bless this itinerary. And eventually she realised what the Lord was saying to her. And he was saying to her that she was doing it all wrong, totally wrong. And that when she realised what God was saying, the next year what she did is she bought a blank sheet of paper that she had signed and said, Lord, will you fill it up for me, please? Can you see? Now we plan and ask God to bless. There is nothing in the Bible to suggest that God will bless our plans. There is nothing in the Bible to suggest that at all. God only blesses what he does, not what we do. God doesn't bless what men and women do. God blesses what he does through men and women. And can you see that there comes a time when we really have got to be willing to let go of our plans, even our best laid, most prayed about Christian plans. Can you see? Because it's so easy to end up doing, 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 thinking up good ideas for the Lord and then expecting him to bless us. And I'll tell you, for Jesus to really be in complete control, but remember again, do-it-yourself Christianity, it's cheaper and you're in complete control. Let Jesus do it, it's far more costly and also you're not in complete control and you've got all the bother of Jesus mucking you about. But you see, the point is that if we really relinquish control to Jesus, then we will find that our plans are going up the spout. We will find that God is ruining our best laid plans. But you see, the point is this. If they were our plans, or if they were the ideas of men and women, no matter how much those ideas were committed to God after they were made up, the point is, if they're merely the ideas of men, who wants them? It's far better that plans like, like that get absolutely mucked up by the Lord anyway. So then... The choice is, we're in complete control, do-it-yourself Christianity or Jesus's. Now, there's a third reason why people are into do-it-yourself, all right? And it's the same reason why Christians are into do-it-yourself Christianity. And it's because if you've put a shelf up or if you've decorated your, your bedroom or something like that, you see, when you've done it yourself, you can sort of look back afterwards and with a glow of pride, you can say, all my own work, can't you? And that is a large reason for do-it-yourself. Now let me tell you, when you've, when you've decorated your bedroom, why not? There's nothing wrong with that when you've decorated your bedroom. But in regards to the Christian life, go to Ephesians, Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2 and find verse 10. 
Ephesians 2 verse 10 and Paul says for we are his workmanship created in Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them now you see the thing is that here when it's got workmanship the Greek word for that is poima and it doesn't just mean any old workmanship it means a work of art and in fact poima is the Greek word that we get poem from and it means a work of art that is expressing what's inside the artist so the point is God wants to express himself through us he wants to reveal himself through us but notice we are his workmanship this isn't something we do, the emphasis is all the time on what God is doing. And look, we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. Now what we've got to realise is that only God can do good works. You and I cannot do good works. The Old Testament says that our good works, our righteousness are like filthy rags absolute filthy rags it's not what we do it's what Jesus wants to do through us and there's a lovely picture of this in the Old Testament and uh, it sort of relates to this bit in Ephesians do you remember Moses and Joshua Moses was confronted with the Lord in the burning bush and then sometime later Joshua was confronted with Jesus uh, in his pre-existent form just before the battle of Jericho so in both cases Moses and Joshua ended up face to face with the Lord and what the Lord told them to do was to take their shoes off because the place that they were standing was holy ground so in the Bible we have the point that taking your shoes off is um, a kind of a symbol of submission to Jesus it's a symbol of true worship but why did Moses and Joshua take their shoes off why was that and remember Moses took his shoes off just before he led Israel out of Egypt and Joshua had to take his shoes off just before he started to lead the Israelites into the conquest of the promised land. So why is it? Why take your shoes off? Well, I'll tell you. Shoes are for going places in. And Moses and Joshua weren't going anywhere anymore. Because it was the Lord saying to them, it's not, this is not going to be you from now on you can't do my work Moses you can't do my work Joshua you've got to take your shoes off because you ain't going anywhere the truth of the matter is that they took their shoes off because they of themselves weren't going anywhere because what the Lord wanted to get across to them is it's more that they were to be his shoes we are to be like Jesus's shoes you see and so the point is that Jesus does the good works. Jesus lives through us. But if we are allowing him, as it were, to wear us like shoes, then as Jesus does his works, wearing us, as it were, as his shoes, then we are walking in them as well. Can you see the picture here? For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. But we walk in the good works as Jesus' shoes. It's him doing it through us. 
And you see, the point about being Jesus' shoes is quite simply this. You see, my shoes don't go walkies without me. I mean, if I get into bed and I take my shoes off and I put them by the side of the bed, when I wake up in the morning, they're still there. And the reason they're still there is because shoes don't go walkies on their own. Shoes only go walkies when someone's wearing them. And in precisely the same way, what we've got today in the kingdom of God are millions and millions and millions of little baptised in the spirit shoes going walkies all over the place without Jesus in them. Can you see? Because we're running around doing for Jesus what he wants to show us that only he can do himself in us and through us. And you see, this is the point. The Christian life is not what we do. It is not do-it-yourself Christianity. It's the exact opposite of that. It's what he does. For instance, 4,000, 6,000 years ago, got it right, God said, let there be light. And do you know what happened? There was light. God said it. He said, I want there to be light. And so light came into being. He then went on to say, I want there to be a whole whacking great big universe. And so what happened? Well, boom, out of nothing, a whole great whacking universe happened. God wanted it and he did it. But the important thing to realise is, God wanted it, God said it, but God did it. Now, you see, the thing is, God has said to us through the pages of the scripture, Be ye holy as I am holy. Now, we can't create light, alright? We couldn't have created the universe. We accept that. God said it. God wanted it, so we had to do it, alright? When God says to us, be ye holy as I am holy, let me ask you, are we supposed to do that? How are we to be holy like God? I'll tell you, you can't be. We are sinners. We are sinners through and through. The point is that God has said that, that we are to be holy as he is. And if we let him do it, he will accomplish that in us. No use us trying to do it, but we, by living in submission to him, must simply cooperate with him and let him accomplish in and through us what we can never, ever, ever do for ourselves. Now you see the thing is that when you decorate your bedroom you feel good about it because you did it and you can show it off to your friends. But you see one of the great enemies that we have is self-righteousness. Our hearts are full of self-righteousness because we have evil hearts of unbelief, we have sinful hearts. And the whole time our sinful nature is wanting us to take glory instead of God. Now the point is this, if you live your Christian life, you're entitled to take the glory for it. I mean, if you pass an exam, you did it, you ought to be praised for it. Nothing wrong with that. So if you live your Christian life, then you're the one who ought to be praised for it. Because God didn't do it, you did it. But can you see, the Bible says that all praise is to go to God. Now, God is just. God will give praise where it's due. 
if you pass an exam, or you did the work, then in that sense, we honour you because you pass an exam, no problem. But can you see, if you're living the Christian life, if you're doing it for Jesus, then the praise goes to you, because you're doing it, not the Lord. But the Bible says praise cannot go to us. Can you see at every point, the Bible is written on the assumption that it's going to be the Lord doing it through us. But I'll tell you, it is a sickening thing to see God's people into self-righteousness, into this spiritual pride, into this kind of, look at me, look at me. That is the exact opposite. Because if, if we've got it in our hearts that we want people to be looking at us and, oh, isn't he a committed Christian? Or, oh, isn't he a wonderful Christian? Or, if you're earnestly desiring the spiritual gifts so that people can say, oh, what wonderful ministry he's got. That's despicable. That is despicable. Because none of these things are what we do. It's what Jesus does. But it's such a tragedy when Jesus does do something, and yet in comes flesh to take the glory for itself. And we, we must be so on our guard about that. We cannot in our lives... If we, any progress that we really have made spiritually, we cannot sort of, kind of, look back and say, all my own work. It's not all our own work. It's the work of Jesus, pure and simple. Now, are you getting the picture here? That the Bible does not teach do-it-yourself Christianity. Many, many Christians have ended up thinking it does, but it doesn't. There are two ways to do something. There are two ways to live the Christian life. You can let Jesus do it, or you can do it yourself. Now, you may be wondering, and if you are, I understand, what on earth has this got to do with the Sermon on the Mount and the thing about the two house builders? Alright, well I mean that, that's precisely what I'm going to tell you about now. What has that got to do with what we've said? And it'll make sense when you realise that the ministry of the Holy Spirit in our lives is that he is bringing about a transition. That is the ministry of the Holy Spirit. He's bringing about a transition in our lives and the transition that he's working to bring a, to bring about in us is simply this it's bringing us out of do-it-yourself Christianity into Christianity whereby it's Jesus doing it through you <coughs> now can you see that is the transition the Holy Spirit is working bringing us out of what we're doing for Jesus into the revelation that the Christian life is what Jesus has done on the cross and what Jesus wants to continue to do in and through us. All right. Now the story, just turn to it, the house builders in, in Matthew. Now this story is one of the keys to understanding the Sermon on the Mount. The Sermon on the Mount is very frequently misunderstood by Christians and there are certain keys that you need in order to understand exactly what Jesus is meaning in it. And one of the keys is this story of the house builders. Because you see, the thing is that Christians have often kind of, they've read the Sermon on the Mount and 
reacted to it or identified with it as if it's giving us an ethical code that we, are tr that we must try and live up to. Now that is not what the Holy Spirit is about. Uh, that's not what the Sermon on the Mount is about. And the thing to realise is that the Sermon on the Mount isn't something that we try to attain to. The Sermon on the Mount is a description of the life of Jesus himself. Only Jesus can live out the Sermon on the Mount. Because only Jesus is 100% righteous. Only Jesus is 100% holy. So therefore the Sermon on the Mount is partially describing for us what Jesus is like. Not what we are, try, are to try and become, it's showing us what Jesus is like. In exactly the same way that in Galatians 5, when you have Paul's teaching about the fruit of the Holy Spirit, a lot of Christians, they're kind of straining away to be peaceful, or they're straining away for self-control, or they're straining away for joy, and you know, as if they've got there the fruit of the Spirit, you know, sort of nine of them, and that, oh, well, if I work a bit harder, if I pray a bit more, if I read my Bible a bit more, I might make a little bit more joy in the morning, you never know. And of course, the great misunderstanding is that the fruit of the Spirit Spirit is the fruit of the Spirit. It's not our fruit. It's not what we do. The fruit of the Spirit is the character of the Holy Spirit. And what's the ministry of the Holy Spirit? To glorify Jesus. Jesus comes to us via the Holy Spirit. So therefore, the fruit of the Spirit, again, it's not something that we're to desperately struggle to attain. The fruit of the Spirit is a description of the life of Jesus in the same way that the Sermon on the Mount is a description of the life of Jesus. And so therefore... Because we, we're seeing that true Christianity is what Jesus does through us, but do-it-yourself Christianity is what we try and do for him. And that is false, and that is not what the Bible teaches. And the Holy Spirit is bringing us through the transition away from what we do into the revelation that Jesus is our life. He's our saviour, yes. He's our baptiser in the Holy Spirit, yes. He's our healer, yes, but Jesus is also our very life. And that is something that's way, way different. That is something that, that, that is, is just, well, I mean, when we come into that revelation that Jesus is our life, can you see, it won't even be us living for Jesus, not living for Jesus, it will be us living Jesus, because Jesus will just be living through us with such freedom. So you see, the thing about the house builders is this. Do-it-yourself Christianity is the house that's built on the sand. It's the house that's, that's built on the sand. And it's interesting because in Matthew 16, Jesus said, I will build my church. Now what's interesting is that the Greek word for build there that he uses is oikodomio. And it doesn't mean to build anything. It doesn't mean to build a shed. Uh, or it doesn't mean to build a butcher shop. Mm -hmm. It means quite specifically to build a house. Oiko de Mayo, I will build my church. Literally, I will build my house, my church. Because the church is where Jesus wants to live. Now, corporately, Christians comprise the church. But in precisely the same way, individually, you and I are Jesus' house. He wants to live in us. John 15, Jesus says, Abide in me and I in you. 
Alright? Jesus wants to abide in us. What does to abide mean? It means to dwell. What does dwell mean? It means to live in. We are Jesus' home. So, you see, the point about these house builders is that the house represents the Christian life, but two types. There's do-it-yourself Christianity that was built on the sand, alright, and there was true Christianity, Jesus doing it, and that was the house built on the rock, alright. But you see, the thing is this, how are we supposed to know whether our Christian lives are on the sand or on the rock? Can you see what I mean? Because both houses look pretty much the same. I mean, when the two house builders were through, the houses looked the same, didn't they? So how are we supposed to know which is which? You see, because the thing is, do-it-yourself Christianity, prays, reads the Bible, seeks to be obedient to the Word of God, alright? But people living in the revelation of Jesus as their life, they're doing much the same things. So on the outside, it looks the same. It's not, because do-it-yourself Christianity is the, the Christians doing it, Whereas people living in the revelation of Jesus as their life, they're letting Jesus do it through them. Can you see the difference? But because they both look so similar, how can you know whether your life is on the rock or your life is on the sand? Well, it's a question of realising that although the houses look the same, the foundations are totally different. One's rock, one's sand. But the thing about a foundation of a house is you can't see it. You see, because it's underneath the house, you see. Now then, so how are we to distinguish the true from the false? Well, this is where the rain and the floods and the winds come in. And the picture here isn't of a little bit of, you know, sort of, you know, pitter-patter of rain and a little blustery, you know, blustery wind. The picture is, is of an incredible storm, alright. And you see, the thing is that this storm battering the house, that storm soon sorts out what houses are built on what foundations. Because the houses built on the wrong foundations, they come crashing down, you see. The houses built on the sand begin to collapse. And when these storms, and I'm going to tell you what they are in a minute, when storms like this come along, Christians, who whether they realise it or not, are merely into do-it-yourself Christianity, their Christian lives begin to collapse. The houses, our Christian lives, are actually put under assault, severe assault, severe attack, alright? And it's do-it-yourself Christianity that doesn't come out of it very well at all. But there's something else, you see. This attack, you know, I mean, it's very easy to, you know, attack spiritual warfare. Ah, the devil's after me. What you've got to realise is that in the Bible, the wind and the rain and the floods are all pictures of the Holy Spirit. Now, I don't know whether it might unnerve you to realise that God might attack you, but let me assure you that he does. We're not talking about some maniac out of Friday the 13th. I mean, we're, we're not talking about that kind of attack, all right? But do you remember Jacob? Jacob, he came across Brook Jabbok, he was all on his own, and do you know what happened? Jesus set on him. Jesus suddenly dived on him and they're having a wrestling match. Can you see? Jacob was assaulted by Jesus. 
And it was only when Jacob eventually let Jesus overpower him and submitted that Jacob really came through to victory in his Christian life or in his life of following the Lord. So you see, the thing is, it's the Lord himself doing it. And, and I heard a story of a, a, a guy who was sort of preaching at a church and this church were having a special kind of weekend, like, you know, sort of have the outside speaker in and, and all seek the Lord. And, and they're having a time of prayer and sort of someone had a vision in the meeting of all, all they could see was this ginormous um, bulldozer just heading towards them. And it's sort of like one of these massive American ones, which really are huge, you know, massive. I mean, the, the things at the front are about 15 foot tall. And all they could see was it coming for them. And the vision was given, it was confirmed, and people felt it was right and of the Lord. And what happened next was a mini panic, you know, like Dad's army. Don't, don't, don't panic, don't, don't <laughs> panic, you see. And they were praying against the dead. Lord, protect us from this. We plead the blood of Jesus. And all this was going on, you see. But the bloke who was leading the weekend, the outside preacher, he sort of prayed, you know, he, he thought, no, there's something wrong here. So he prayed again, you see. And the Lord gave him a vision of the bulldozer, but from the side. And the Holy Spirit was driving it, you see. Because what was happening was, is that that church, it wasn't a true church at all, it was just do-it-yourself Christianity. And so the Lord was coming along to knock it down, and when it got knocked down, then everyone would realise it was do-it-yourself Christianity. Because you can't knock down what Jesus does. Can you see? If your Christian life is living in the revelation of Jesus being your life, then no storm can knock your Christian life down. Of course it can't. You can't knock Jesus down. But if it's built on the sand, if it's merely what you're doing for Jesus, then believe me, it's just going to come uh, tumbling down. Go to Jeremiah. Jeremiah chapter 1. Because we need to remind ourselves of the various ways in which God works. I mean, nowadays we're really, we're really into positive, positive, positive. Nothing negative allowed. Well, let me tell you, the Bible is tremendously negative in places. And that you can only have something that's truly positive after the negative has come about. Jeremiah, chapter 1 and verse 9. Now look at, this is the ministry of someone who was called to be a prophet. Then the Lord put forth his hand and touched my mouth, and the Lord said, Behold, I have put my words in your mouth, i.e. preaching God's word, all right? See, I have set you this day over nations and kingdoms. Now look at this, to pluck up, to break down, to destroy, and to overflow, overthrow, to build and to plant. Now all we allow today is building and planting. Oh, you can't be negative. That's criticising. Rubbish. Look, there's a six-fold ministry here. Two-thirds of it is pluck up, break down, destroy and overflow. Overthrow. Can't you see God destroys before he builds? The guy who built his house on the sand, how was he to ever get a house that was solidly built on the rock? I'll tell you. It was only when his house fell down that he realised he built it on the wrong foundation. Then the work of destruction having been done, then he could start building on the right foundation. Now can you see that God's Holy Spirit always does a work of destruction first? There is always tearing down before there's building up. 
there is always the negative before there's the positive. There is always death in the Christian life before there's resurrection life in the power of Jesus. So, let me ask you, is your house falling down? Praise the Lord. That's terrific. That's progress. Because the thing is, that when it's fallen down, you realise that you didn't have the real thing anyway. I mean, yes, of course, you're a genuine Christian, you're genuinely born again, Jesus is genuinely with you, and you genuinely know him. But what I'm talking about, you're, you've got a chance to realise that you've responded to Jesus, and you've kind of, Lord, I am going to do things in response to you. Look what I'm going to do for you. And you've built your Christian life upon the sand. Well, praise God, if he's knocking it down, you're well on the way to putting it up again, only Jesus building it. Do you remember? I will build my church. Jesus said, I will build my house, the church. It's not something we do. But until we stop, and until our efforts are brought to nothing, then can you say, see, we're getting in the way of Jesus actually doing what he wants to do through us. So if, you're, if your Christian life, if your house is falling to bits, that's terrific. Came a time when mine fell like a deck of cards. My discipleship ended up blown all over the beach, as it were. Absolute ruination, devastation. And I am so pleased that God did that. Because if he hadn't have done it, I'd have still been belting around doing things for Jesus in the flesh. It is such a relief to realise that the emphasis in the Bible is what Jesus does. Mine, my responsibility is to cooperate with him, to respond to him, to, you know, to, to be willing for him to do it through me. But realising that the responsibility isn't mine, that is a liberation. I mean, that is incredible. So don't worry, you know, I, I, I mean, like a deck of cards, mine came down. And you see, it's the tough times that do it. Because the storms, the wind and the rains and the floods, these are the tough times that we go through. Go back to Ezekiel. Ezekiel 47. Because you, you sort of see this all over the Bible. Remember we were seeing this vision of him being in the spirit and just flowing in the waters of life picturing, you know, sort of the real victorious discipleship in Jesus. But look at verse... Now, where's the bit I want? That's right, in verse 11. It's describing all the blessing that comes where this river goes. You know, the, the trees, the fishes, the new life. But look at verse 11. But its swamps and marshes will not become fresh. They are to be left for salt. Now, don't be surprised that there are swamps and marshes in your Christian life. They're the sticky times. They're the knotty times. They're the times when, well, it doesn't seem like God's doing anything. It's just like trudging through a bog, isn't it, following the Lord? Well, the marshes were producing salt. Now, in the Bible, what is salt a symbol of? Salt is always a picture of Jesus himself. It's the sticky times you get into in your Christian life that are producing the life of Jesus in you. It's the tough times. It's the storms. It's the falling down. It's the when everything is against you. That is when Jesus is doing his real work. In Psalm 127 verse 1 it says, Unless the Lord build the house, they that build it 
labour in vain. Can you see do-it-yourself Christianity? No good whatsoever. And, uh, I mean, all I can say is that when it comes to do-it-yourself around the house, I am absolutely awful. Everything, you, you wouldn't believe the mess I get into when I try and put a shelf up. You just, I, I, I see from some of your faces that you do believe the kind of mess I get into. Because you see, if I, if I do do it yourself, everything I touch absolutely falls to pieces. Now, can you see, we've got to get to the point where we realise that we built our Christian lives and they have fallen to pieces. And it's God who's going to make sure they do fall to pieces. Can you see, it must be Jesus who does it? Paul said in Galatians, it's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. But immediately before that, in Galatians 2.20, he said, I have been crucified with Christ. <laughs> there is the destruction. There are the winds. There are the waves. There are the floods. There are the storms. There are the swamps. There are all the sticky wickets that God puts you to bat on. Can you see? All the tough times. And what they're doing is they're bringing us into death to ourselves so that we can come into the revelation that it's Jesus himself who is our life. Let's just have a quick look at Peter. I love the example. You see, Peter is one of the great do-it-yourselfers in the Bible, wasn't he? Just go to Luke 22. Luke 22. I love Peter. I can identify with Peter so much. Luke 22 and verse 31. And look what it says here. Luke 22 and verse 31. This is Jesus speaking to him. He says, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan has demanded to have you, that he might sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. When you have turned again, strengthen your brethren. Now, what we're going to see here is the role that Satan plays in all this. And believe me, it's really incredible. Nothing incredible about Satan. It's incredible what God does about Satan in all this. Absolutely brilliant. But you see, firstly, here is Jesus talking to Peter. And he says, look, Satan wants to sift you like wheat. And he's saying, I'm going to let him. Because Satan can only do what Jesus gives him permission to do. All right? And what's interesting is that in verse 31, when he says Satan has demanded to have you, that he might sift you like wheat. In the Greek, that's in the plural. That's in the plural. Because Satan is going to be allowed to do this to all of us. Eventually, God is going to have Satan do this to all of us, alright? But when you get to verse 32, Jesus said, I have prayed for you, and that you is in the singular. So, what's lovely here, every Christian has to go through this. There's no escaping it. One way or the other, the Lord's going to put you through this, alright? But the point is that when he said to Peter, but I have I have prayed for you, the you being in the singular, is that whereas we all go through it, when we're going through it, we have Jesus' individual attention the whole time. Absolute, his individual attention the whole time. Now the point is, Satan to sift Peter like wheat. Now what's the picture here? Well, you've got Peter's life, alright? There's the wheat and there's the chaff. 
The chaff is the grossy stuff, the wheat is the good stuff. The chaff is Peter, the wheat is, what's the wheat, unless a corn of wheat fall into the ground and die? Who's the corn of wheat? It's Jesus, can you see? And so what we're talking about here is that Satan is going to be used to, if you like, knock Peter out of himself so there's only Jesus left. Can you see the picture there? And of course the point about the separation of wheat from chaff is that they did it in what was called a threshing sledge. And basically, the threshing sledge gave the wheat and all the stuff a good, good belting. In fact, thresh is the same word, linguistically, as thrash. It's a good thrashing. So the point is that what Peter is saying is that Satan is going to really put you through a good beating, Peter. And in him doing it, he's going to get the chaff out of you, and it's the wheat that's going to be left. All right. But look at Peter, his immediate response, and this is why Peter needed to go through it. He said, Lord, I'm ready to go with you to prison and to death. Now, when Peter said that, he meant it. He really meant it. But the problem that Peter had was that he was still depending on his own strength. He wanted to, but because he was depending on his own strength, Jesus knew he never could. Can you see? Because Peter's saying, I'm going to do this, Lord. I'll die for you. I'll be persecuted for you. I'll never... It's me, 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 me. It's do-it-yourself Christianity. Now, Jesus' response is, I tell you, the crop will not crow this day until you deny three times that you know me. And Peter's saying, no, sorry, Peter, you're building your house on the sand and something's got to knock it down. But as far as Peter's concerned, this is what I'm going to do, Lord. So the point is, Peter is now handed over into a situation where Satan is given liberty by God to set him up. And Satan's intention behind it is to destroy Peter. When Satan attacks you, his intention is always to destroy you, but he can't, alright? Behind Satan is the Lord's intention, and he is simply using Satan to bring you to a greater maturity. So the point is this, that what happens is that Satan sets Peter up, and he so arranges thing, things that Peter has a chance to do what he promised Jesus he would. He said, I will die, I will go to prison for you, Jesus, I will die with you, I love you that much. Now, if you go over into verse 54, we can see how Satan set this up. This is, then they seized Jesus and led him away, bringing him into the high priest's house. Peter followed at a distance, and when they kindled a fire in the middle of the courtyard and sat down, Peter sat among them. Then a maid, seeing him as he sat at the light and gazing at him, said, This man also was with him, but he denied it, saying, Woman, I do not know him. And a little later, someone else saw him and said, You also are one of them. And Peter said, Man, I am not. And after an interval of about an hour, another insisted, saying, This man also was with him, he's a Galilean. But Peter said, I do not know what you're saying and immediately while he was still speaking the cock crowed and the Lord turned and looked at Peter Jesus at this point was being taken across the courtyard Peter finished denying Jesus for the third time turned round and there was Jesus standing there looking at him looking at him Peter had blown it oh boy this is major failure and the Lord turned and looked at Peter 
And Peter remembered the word of the Lord, how he had said to him, Before the cock crows today, you will deny me three times. And he went out and wept bitterly. Now can you see what's happened here? The Lord has used Satan to prove to Peter beyond doubt that do-it-yourself Christianity is not what it's about. It's not going to be what Peter did for Jesus at all. It could only be Peter being brought to the end of himself completely so that Jesus could live through him. And you know, a lot of people make a mistake about Peter and they say that from Pentecost onwards, the reason, the reason that God could use Peter in such a mighty way was because he'd been baptised in the Holy Spirit and had such great faith. That is a half-truth. And a half-truth is as good as a lie. Because the reason why God could use Peter so mightily after the day of Pentecost is because Peter was so broken here because of his failure. He was so emptied of himself here that he was consequently so filled with the Holy Spirit when he was baptised in the Holy Spirit. Can you see the point? Peter was brought totally, 100% to the end of himself. The edifice of his Christian life crumbled when he denied Jesus three times. And because Peter knew that he could do nothing for Jesus, because he knew now he had nothing to offer Jesus except sin and failure. Therefore, because he was a man emptied of himself, he was a man who could be so incredibly filled, so incredibly filled with Jesus himself. And remember, we can only be filled to the Holy, with the Holy Spirit and therefore Jesus to the extent that we have been emptied of ourselves. And believe me, you can speak in tongues and move in the gifts of the Spirit with the minimum amount of your life surrendered to Jesus. The Bible is very clear. Moving in the gifts of the Spirit is no sign of spirituality whatsoever. I've known people do it while they've been living in moral sin. Alright? It is no sign of anything except someone can use the gifts of the Spirit. And as far as I'm concerned, bully for them. The emphasis in the Bible is that Jesus, the holiness of Jesus, be revealed through us. Then the gifts of the Spirit will come. But can you see, it's got to be Jesus living his life through us and ministering through us. So the point is this. In order to do this work of destruction in us, God even uses the devil. The devil can't wait to get his hands on you because he wants to destroy you. Alright? But God lets Satan have a bash because God knows that Satan can't. And that therefore, it's the very attack that Satan comes against you with that causes in you the failure, the sin, the falling to bits, that makes you realise that it's you and not Jesus and brings you through into the revelation of the life of Jesus. Can you see, Satan tries to destroy you, but the only reason God lets him try is because God is using him merely to bring you to the end of yourself, to sift you like wheat, so that having been brought to the end of yourself, that there you can come into the revelation of Jesus as your life. And so can you see, 
the way that God is absolutely sovereign in this. He's knocking down the edifice of our false Christianity. He's doing this individually in our lives. He's doing it in churches and he's going to keep doing it. And he's going to step it up. You're going to see more and more churches disintegrating as time goes by. Because the Holy Spirit is shaking and that which is not of Jesus is going to fall absolutely to bits. And it's so incredible to know that God is even using Satan as part of this process. That is the Lordship of Jesus. Satan is trying to destroy you. He can't because he can't lift a finger against you until he clears it with Father in Heaven. But Father knows the extent that he can let Satan go against you just hard enough so that you fall to bits <coughs> and realise that it's got to be Jesus from now on and not you in your own strength. So it's absolute perfection, absolute perfection. Just go to John 15 and we'll just end on some words of Jesus. John chapter 15. And this kind of really sums up what we've been talking about. John 15 and verse 4. And this is Jesus speaking. He said, Abide in me and I in you. Alright? As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself, the fruit of the Spirit, well, what's the fruit of the Spirit, Jesus, all right? All comes from the vine himself. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me, because the fruit is Jesus living through us. It's not what we produce in response to Jesus. He says, um, I am the vine and you are the branches. Now, there's our oneness with him because the branches are the vine. There's no separation between a vine and its branches. The branches are as much a part of the vine as the stem is. But the important thing is, Jesus is the life of the vine, and it's only through his life revealed in us that we as branches and part of the vine actually bear fruit, his life coming through us. But he says, he who abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit, for apart from me, you can do nothing. And do-it-yourself Christianity has been our failure to realise that. To believe that apart from Jesus and in our own strength and through our good ideas, we can do something for him. So we've been running around doing our some things. God looks on it and realises it's absolutely nothing. So he thinks, well, I'd better show them it's nothing. And the best way to do that is to pound it into the ground. And when it's been pounded into the ground by Father, you realise, ah, yes, I think I built my house on the sand. Better make sure it's built on the rock. And let me ask you, who is the rock? It's Jesus. Jesus is the rock. And the foundation of our Christian life is that he saved us. He's brought us into salvation. But the principle of the continuing Christian life is that Jesus wants to live through us. So it's no longer I who live, as Paul says, but Christ who lives in me. So therefore, the decision is ours. Do-it-yourself Christianity. There are two ways. You can do it yourself, or you can let the Lord do it. I've made my decision. I haven't regretted it, even though I did end up with a headache when I sat underneath the, you know, when the edifice of my Christian life kept coming down on my head. It's not very nice. 
But I am just so pleased that it eventually happened. Because even though it's not easy at the time, and destruction never is, the point is that through death comes resurrection, a new life in Jesus, and a new revelation of Jesus himself. So therefore, um, dare you, dare you invite God to test your house to see whether it's you or whether it's him. Well, I dare you. You do it and see what happens. We'll finish there.